Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Wait, how do we start this show normally? <laughs> well, howdy there, folks. Howdy, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And, and together, we're your temporary, temporary experts. experts. We thought we would start this week off by talking about some stuff we've talked about before. Kind of a update on a couple of stories. Starting off with Perseverance on the surface of Mars launched Ingenuity, which is one of their drones. So it performed its first successful flight on the surface of Mars. Which is a pretty uh, significant step for uh, for human space exploration, that's for sure. Um, I mean, it'll be a long time before I think uh, the, I guess, the, the fortunes of this test are really revealed for space exploration. But pretty cool. We've now flown a helicopter on the surface of Mars. We also thought we'd provide a little bit of update from last week's story, or last episode's story, about uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. There's been uh, there's been a, a little bit more uh, news surrounding these uh, blood clots. Uh, there's still been no uh, no link proven between the AstraZeneca vaccine and an increase in blood clots, but it has caused some jurisdictions to to switch up again who they're offering the vaccine to and and how how quickly they're offering it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I did read that there uh, in a European report that. The incident of blood clots happening to people who got the AstraZeneca vaccine is not higher than the incidence of blood clots in the regular population. Uh, but wherever there's a, coral, a potential correlation like this, uh, people, it's it's not a bad idea to err on the side of caution, if especially if you're someone who may be at risk for blood clots. And the process of science is always looking at new information, taking it in, and uh, using that new information to inform your choices. So this is just the process of science in action. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess it makes it not so much even of a of a developing story, but one that's just sort of like story continuing. Nothing super new developments, but like still still the potential for some some new information to come out from that one. So we thought we would uh, yeah, we thought we would just share those updates with y'all if you were curious. But uh, but if you uh, if you listened to the last episode, you may have gotten to the end, and uh, we talked a little bit about some things that we were. We were thinking about talking about for this week, we were thinking about doing some stuff around oil extraction, uh, just because there had been a lot of stuff in the news um, with the Alberta government. Uh, and which the were... Sasquatch movie. <laughs> and the Sasquatch movie on Netflix, which was quite a funny story. Uh, it's kind of faded from from the news in the last couple weeks. And uh, and we felt it was just, uh, we felt like focusing on something a little bit more, more fun today, maybe. Yeah, more fun. And I mean, we live in Alberta, so uh, oil and gas will come back into the news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the boom and bust cycle must continue. So there will be there will be once again an appropriate time to talk about oil extraction. You can you can put money on it. You can't bet on oil anymore, but you can bet on the fact that we'll have to talk about it again at some point. Yeah. So so what are we going to talk about then, Sarah? Since we're we're not talking about that black that sweet sweet black gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice. Uh, we are going to talk about springtime. Springtime. It, springtime. It, spring is coming. Spring is is here potentially. I mean, Ish. it keeps snowing every two or three days. Yeah, I remember after uh, <laughs> the last. It was when uh, Alberta got the news that we were gonna not be going into stage three. So this was mm. like three weeks ago. We got the news we weren't going to go into stage three, but Dr. Hinshaw was uh, talking. She was like, "But it's getting nicer out. Like 
winter is over and the next day it snowed for like an hour <laughs> it's just like okay <laughs> that that is the reality of living in a in a microclimate like we do here in uh, in calgary um but <laughs> we're getting close it's looking nicer and nicer out every day for sure so so you are you are a resident expert i think in spring uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh biology is much more my bag than the other sciences and plants and stuff in particular so we're going to talk about springtime and plants and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so springing right in. <laughs> uh, in spring, what is happening? What's the difference? So some of the main things. What do you think the main things are, Davis, of spring? Well, I mean, I always, I've always sort of associated spring, I guess, with uh, with the lengthening of the days has been a big one for me. And and I mean, like, and I guess coming along with that, the warmer, the warmer weather. But definitely... I think for me mentally, I turn the corner on winter around the time that the days really start getting longer. Um, and and yeah, and maybe like the time change is always one that kind of clues me in, mostly because I hate the time change, but um, I mean, who doesn't? So. Yeah, topic mm. for another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we missed, that. we missed that one this year. But yes, exactly. So we have uh, lengthening days. This uh, The length of a day is called a photo period. Our photo period is increasing and everything is warming up and everything is also waking up. So this is animals coming out of hibernation, right? We've got our animal friends uh, who, the ones who hibernate, what happens when they, when it gets cold, they, uh, and they go into a hibernation state, their metabolism slows down so that they burn through their energy stores more slowly. Because we always, we all think about like bears and stuff, they eat a lot so that they have fat stores through the winter. And if they slow their metabolism, so decrease their heart rate and slow down their breathing and uh, lower their body temperature, then it will mean that their body is going to burn through energy stores less quickly, which is uh, a good thing if you're not going to eat for like six months. Fun fact, it's very different from sleep. In like sleep, you can be woken up from fairly quickly and it's more of like a brain activity. Whereas hibernation, the awareness and consciousness of an animal actually like diminishes substantially. So they're, they're really, really unaware of anything going on around them. Hmm. So, so is that kind of why like we as humans we like obviously we don't hibernate i mean maybe that would be nice but uh, <laughs> but like but i you know i've always felt like you know you come into the springtime and that's why i kind of use the word like turning the corner on winter mm-hmm. a little bit cuz you kind of come out you know i'm i'm usually reasonably excited for the start of winter like we live in a place with with seasons i love my seasons everybody always says that very temperate climate <laughs> perfect four seasons yeah exactly <laughs> but i mean like usually by the time the end of the the summer and fall ro- rolls around i'm like oh yeah like might as well buy into winter cuz it's coming anyway yeah. but then by the end of winter i'm like okay all right, well, it's snowed three times in a row this week now, and it's March or April. It's April now. So it's like, maybe I'm done with it. But like, we even though we don't hibernate, like, why is it that we kind of have this tendency to like, we want to emerge in the springtime? We do want to emerge in the springtime, which I'm going to get to very soon. <laughs> I just have, a, I have some fun animal facts that I uh, want to share. Oh, perfect. And then yes. I'll absolutely go into humans. Mm-hmm. That is next after fun animal facts. Uh, so a lot of animals... Uh, the, how they come out of hibernation has to do with that photo period, right? That day length um, and also warmth. So you have certain creatures like garter snakes. They hibernate underground. So they head underground before it freezes, then it freezes. And then once the uh, ground starts to warm up with the day's lengthening, more sunlight, then they know that's kind of like their trigger to come out from underground. Some have hormonal cues. So it's like a humans have, we have our circadian rhythm, right? So every, we like, we want to go to sleep and wake up kind of with the sun, animals will have a 
circannual rhythm that kind of oh, helps yeah it helps okay. inform their like when to when to wake up when to go to sleep and there's lots of other cues in terms of like yeah we've got day length warmth availability of food if an animal starts seeing like a lot less food around uh came across one one article that said uh bears return when the berries return like bears return oh. when their food returns because bears bears don't do true hibernation uh because they they don't sleep in like this the their hibernation isn't as like deep of a sleep really they don't like don't like go down i mean you can think of this with polar bears polar bears and other bears they'll have their their cubs in the den right right yeah, yeah before so, emerging in the springtime exactly mm-hmm. so they're not in true hibernation um but it's they they kind of stay in and they're not going to like go to eat a ton they might go out and like have a snack maybe but it's it's I did not know that. I mean, we're like, we so often um, just associate like bears as like the principal hibernator. Or like when you talk about hibernation, like everybody's like, oh yes, bears, the great example. So yeah. it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So they, they hibernate, mm. but not, uh, not to the depth that like a ground squirrel or uh, like a frog or something. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then going to humans as a, as Davis mentioned, uh, when spring comes around, not only do uh, animals start uh, coming out of hibernation and plants come out of dormancy, because the reason plants don't grow in the winter is they go dormant because water freezes and they can't soak up water. So it's better to just kind of dormancy is like the plant version of hibernation. <laughs> now, now, how true is that for, for trees? Like, obviously, we live in an area with a lot of like coniferous trees. So are they in more of a dormant phase in the wintertime as well? Like, do they also sort of start to wake up in the spring or are they kind of in a class of their own a little bit? Uh, I believe they go through a similar sort of dormancy. So they don't lose their leaves the way that we see uh, deciduous mm-hmm. trees lose their leaves, but they, they're not actively growing. Okay. So, and this oh, is, yeah, yeah. This is why we have, this is actually why we have tree rings is because of the different uh, season cycles because you'll have you'll have growth in the summer and then it stops and you get these rings from it whereas if you go to somewhere that doesn't have four seasons that's like one temperature all the time their trees the rings are actually different in their tree cookies oh interesting okay and tree cookie is the the term for like a section of a of a trunk but it's much more fun to say tree cookie mm-hmm. oh for sure <laughs> well even like that that's like the official term for it like even the yeah. arborists that they call them tree cookies it's pretty funny actually it's the yeah. best term on tree care and springtime if you uh if you're going to be pruning your trees the best time to do it is when they're waking up or when they're going to sleep so early spring late fall and this is true for for a lot of plants um, they don't really like being cut when they're growing a ton. Just be careful around uh, if you have flowering plants and flowering shrubs and trees. You don't want to cut off where the new buds are going to grow. So if you have questions, I would ask your a local greenhouse. Uh, a local greenhouse, uh, usually a smaller greenhouse is not a place like Lowe's or something where they have specialized. They're specialized for this and they can let you know when the best time to prune is. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and good old Dr. Google can usually give you a pretty good idea uh, depending on the plant. If you know, if you know your plant, I've got a... I've got like a fern downstairs that uh, I've sort of nursed <laughs> through the winter. It, it 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 didn't survive transplanting into my house super well, and then uh, I've been. But he's coming back to life now. I call him Fernius, of course. Nice. But I, yeah, I've kind of I've debated with him like, do I trim some of the dead growth um, or the or the kind of the dying fronds and things like that? But I can't find a name for the uh. plant on the, on any of the any of the like tags that are still on it, so I have no idea <laughs> how to how to care for it. You probably, if it's a fully dead frond, you could probably prune it off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually been quite interesting because now that the sun has returned in the window that, that Fernius sits in and he's getting a little <laughs> bit more like solid daylight, uh, some of those fronds that I thought about 
you know, cutting off and have kept because they still felt like they had quite a bit of, of, of life to them. Like they were quite firm still, mm -hmm. even though they didn't, they were, they were yellowed. Some of them have started to return some green coloration in oh, spots. Sweet. So it's quite interesting. So anyway, yeah. the, the saga of Furnius <laughs> continues, but. Yeah. Okay. It reminds me of, um, uh, we're, we'll come back to humans in a sec. <laughs> <laughs> More about Davis's plant Furnius. Yes. Uh, and books about plants. Uh, when oh, I was yes. in grade, I think six, we had to read, I think it's the secret garden. And I remember mm -hmm. them talking about, they looked and they thought all the plants were dead, but if you just, if you like took a knife and you cut under the top layer of bark and it was green inside, it might look dead, but if it's green inside, it's still a living plant. Mm. And so I've, I've done that when I've worked uh, in garden centers and landscaping before. They're like, I don't know. And you, if you cut in and it's like just woody, probably not on the live mm. branch, but if you cut in and it's green, I wouldn't recommend doing this with like small house plants, right, but right. like bigger trees and shrubs. Oh, huh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, as Furnius is waking up and coming <laughs> back to life, uh, when spring hits, a lot of humans start feeling a lot better. This could be um, partially because of seasonal affective disorder. If you have if you have seasonal affective disorder, your mood and depression is is it's much worse when it's it's cold and dark. And and seasonal affective disorder, right? It's it's related it's related mostly to how much vitamin D you get and how much sun sunshine you get. So when you live somewhere far north like we do you we've got really short winter days and and plus like the weather keeps you inside and things like that as well it's not, and it's just not as easy to get as much sunlight so it affects something like <clears throat> oh i'm gonna have to look up the statistic but it's it's quite a number it's a large number of people every year which makes sense i mean especially if you work kind of a regular nine to five where we live if it's in the winter, if you work a nine to five, you wake up and you go to work and it's like just getting light and you leave work and the sun is setting. So it's like mm -hmm. you don't ever really get to see the yeah. sun. Um, so when the days start getting longer and things start getting, it starts getting warmer and you don't have to wear like 80 layers to go outside and maybe you can just go outside in shoes instead of having to put your boots on. We start feeling a little better and and uh, we wake up and we, we we start feeling a little bit more motivation and energy to do things. Which is why a lot of people want to do spring cleaning. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. You can't avoid a conversation about spring without. I mean, I need to, I've been, it's been on my mind. I need to get to my spring cleaning soon and things like that. But yeah. Yeah. So it's when the world wakes up, we wake up and we get this motivation. You can think of the, the, the kind of the impetus with spring cleaning, uh, with photo period and all the stuff the animals are using. Also, in relation to New Year's. Okay. You can set a resolution any time of year, right? Right. But people tend to wait until New Year's and then there's this like, it's like a cultural motivation to do it and and you think you're gonna you're gonna stick to your your resolution more at New Year's and same with kind of spring cleaning they we think of spring as the time to oh we can finally open the doors and windows again we can get air circulating through here I want to I want a fresh start yeah I uh, I know that like so I so I think you have a you have like forced air in your house as well if I remember correctly so like I, I know that that's one of the things they say as well as like you should change your uh, filters in all your furnaces in the springtime. Like coming, if you come out of a winter where you've had to run the furnace a lot, you should change your filters. Uh, one, because it's more efficient and it can, it will like help your furnace sort of last longer. But when you're running it a lot, and then like you said, in the winter, you got all your windows shut and stuff and you build up a lot of dust in the, in the home. But yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. That fresh feeling of cleaning your house following the, following a, a dark and dirty winter. Exactly. It's kind of a way to like slough off the heaviness of winter and just, yeah, that, that heaviness, that dreariness. And you can be like, ah, oh, we're, the snow is lifted and so are my spirits and I can move <laughs> forwards more happily. <laughs> They're also decluttering and cleaning are simple tasks when you, when you really look at them, right? Like we all know how to vacuum our house, 
It takes a bit of time, but when you do it, there's it doesn't take a lot of brain space to do mm-hmm. or brain mm-hmm. energy to do. And at the end, the the end product is like it's a clear I finished this, I feel accomplished, I can see the difference I've made, which is a big motivator for us, right? If if we can if we see the results of our action, then I think we're more likely to continue acting. Mm, that's a that's a very good point. You know, it uh it is definitely it's it, cleaning is one of those tasks where it's like it's better like a little bit is better than none sort of thing or like it's better to do it imperfectly than not at all like even just cleaning up a little bit will always kind of make you feel a little bit better put you in control of your space even if you're someone who like is like me and like enjoys a bit of chaos in their spaces and like you know my desk is always a mess and things like that but like it sort of helps my process but there's always a there's an upper limit i think for every person's level oh, yeah. of uh, disorder <laughs> in their workspaces <laughs> yeah absolutely and even just like in other parts of the house like uh i find one thing that was helping me uh when i was furloughed this this season was every morning uh, i'd get up and like do an hour or two of work and then when i went down to make tea at like 9 i would I would fill the, the kettle up completely and I would set it to boil and I would do dishes for the time that the kettle was boiling. Mm-hmm. So then I can start the day and then I can look and be like, ah, instead of dirty dishes, I see clean dishes and now I'm going to have my tea and I'm going to go and it help, it helps give me like a really tangible cleaning to do as I moved into the rest of my day. And I think you, I think you kind of hinted at something that's going to be really interesting about the sort of spring cleaning season this year is like, a lot of us have been home a lot more than we would normally be. And like, I was reading an article the other day that was talking about how um, people are, in essence, you're cleaning more than you ever were before. <laughs> and you will kind of recognize that like, oh, I seem to be cleaning my apartment all the time, or I'm cleaning my house all the time. I'm vacuuming every two days and used to only have to vacuum every week. And it's just like on and on and on. And then the house never seems to be getting any cleaner. And it was sort of, there was this article talking about how a lot of people are feeling this way. Uh, right now because it's just the effects of kind of the the effect that COVID has had on our lives we're spending a lot more time in our personal spaces a lot of us are working from home or we're not working and it's created this effect where you're constantly cleaning and you're also constantly feeling like it's messier than it's ever been because you're living in your space more than ever before so I think it's interesting it will be very interesting and especially with so many places in particular here in Canada but like really around the world um that are in similar like vaccination pace boats as we are, where they're dealing with like a pretty big third wave and are kind of locked back down again. It'll be really interesting to see if there's like, are we going to see way more garage sales this year? Oh. Are we going to see a lot more, you know, just like way more intensive spring cleaning out of people because you've been stuck in these environments now for, for an entire year for, you know, last spring, you may not have gone and done a bunch of extra stuff because this had only just started. Right. Yeah, maybe. I know I have not had an urge to clean a lot more through hmm. this. I I also uh, trying to get um, third third sock from the sun up and running. Mm-hmm. My house is full of craft supplies, <laughs> which are now order organized. Oh my <laughs> but, goodness! Uh, but it's yeah, my house is still pretty messy. Um, <laughs> but I know I've had the urge to get out more because with the with the shortening days, like I don't tend to like to leave my house too much when it's dark. Which means that in the winter, I have a very short window I can leave my house. And if I don't leave my house before 4 p.m., I'm not going to. So I felt uh, trapped a little more. Mm. So coming into the weather warming up, I my eyes are on the mountains. Like, my, my urge is to just get outside and, like, run and skip and just, like, stand and bask in the sun like a tree. <laughs> uh, it's it's going to be quite nice, uh, yeah, to... 
I'm, I'm really looking forward to camping seasons getting going to get started camping. here pretty soon. So very, excited. Very exciting for oh, that. Best yes. season. But yeah, so, and if you are a type of person who is wants to do a cleaning blitz as, you know, you feel motivated, uh, there's a few, there's a couple ways to approach this. Some people like to do the cleaning blitz, right? So like, I'm going to take one or two weekends, I'm going to do nothing but clean, and I'm going to get it done. That is my uh, plan. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my plan with, uh, that's my plan with certain things where you kind of have to make a mess as you clean or tidy. Like when I was a kid and I would clean my closet, every couple of years I'd go through and my closet, like it had clothes, but it also had like all my stuff. So I would go through and I would take it. I take literally everything out and just lay it on the floor of my room. So my room was chaos for like two days, but then I could reorganize and get rid of stuff and then put it back. So it was like, I had to do it all at once because there, <laughs> otherwise I had to live in that chaos and that's too much chaos. But if that's not the way that you operate, Take it and break it into smaller chunks, you know? So this this works with any really big task. It's really easy to feel overwhelmed when we look at these really big tasks. And you might think, like, it's spring. I got to do it now. Everyone else is cleaning. I see my neighbors. They're, like, beating their their uh, carpets outside. <laughs> do do or, people like, still do that? I don't like, know. With, like, it's those uh, old tennis racket-looking things? I'm sure there are people <laughs> somewhere. If you're one of those people, tell us on Twitter. <laughs> but, yeah, like, if, uh, if you're getting overwhelmed, know that you don't have to do it all at once. Just take it and... Break it into these little little bite-sized pieces. So maybe it's room by room. Like maybe today is the kitchen, or uh, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do all the dusting today, and then I'm gonna do the vacuuming uh, the next day. So like breaking it into these bite-sized pieces, it can help you feel motivated the same way that like cleaning and we were saying doing dishes. It gives you a, an accomplishable task that has a clear end and a clear sign when it's over, and you can like really look at it and know that you're done. Cleaning is great for that. So. If you break it into smaller chunks, you'll have more accomplishable goals. And it's kind of like bunny hopping your way to success instead of trying to do it in one dramatic leap. Well, that is, that makes <laughs> that is uh, that certainly makes quite the case for uh, for spring cleaning. But as I understand it as well, there's uh, there's a few other benefits that uh, that you can get from some spring cleaning, especially if you are um, like so many of us. A, a sufferer of, of we always called it hay fever in my family. Maybe that's like because we're here in Alberta and we have lots of hay. I don't know. People say that in Ontario too. Okay. Well, there you go. So yeah, hay fever or, or um, I was going to say spring fever, but that's, uh, that's a different thing. Um, seasonal allergies. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yes. Seasonal allergies are a big thing. I am a sufferer with just annoyingly sensitive sinuses uh, and doing this spring cleaning can actually help to reduce your seasonal allergy severity. Oh, okay. Why is that? Well, as you mentioned with the, the furnaces and like changing out your filters, mm -hmm. right? As in the winter, we don't tend to open our windows. We, we just let air circulate through and in air is dust. And what is dust? But, but dead skin cells and, uh, plant and fungal spores that could be in there and pet hair and dander and, mm -hmm. and like dirt dust and like, all. Oh, all the things and they're circulating through your house now. So doing a, a nice deep cleaning uh, can be really good to kind of help get all of that stuff out of your house. And if you doubt, if you doubt that most of the dust in your house is you, it's like <laughs> dead you floating around the, the uh, astronauts on the ISS, they have to dust like every day because the human body 
gets rid of so many skin cells every day. And you, you wouldn't think about it here on Earth because gravity is going to pull them to the ground and turn them into dust. And you just see it as dust and kind of live with it. So we, we learn to deal with it. But, I, but I, on the International Space Station, I've, I've heard these interviews with astronauts where they talk about like they'll peel their socks off. And then there'll be like a cloud of dust, Ugh, and that disgusting. that is the dead skin that's come <laughs> off their like their feet that day. Or they'll they have to vacuum like the panels because they will see the the literal dust build up, and the only source of dust because of the way the filters work on the space station are like the dust coming off, like the dead skin cells coming off the the astronauts. So there's your gross science fact of the day. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I, I want to clean now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and just like if you were. If you were thinking about becoming an astronaut now, maybe you've got some 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 new considerations to make. You'd be floating around with your you and all your buddies' skin cells. Uh, humans are so gross. <laughs> I do I do find myself thinking that every so often. <laughs> uh, well, on on that lovely note, uh, if uh, if you if you are outside and you do suffer from seasonal allergies, uh, one uh, another good way in addition to dusting and uh, short of peeling off your skin, um, <laughs> if you take a uh, uh, if you're out, especially you're out and about, if you take a shower when you get home and you wash your hair, or at least rinse your hair before you go to bed, then at least when you go to lie down for the night, you're not going to be just lying in all of the dust and the pollen and stuff that you picked mm -hmm. up during the day. You can kind of clear that off and it uh, might help reduce your symptoms as you sleep. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's something that we should probably clarify too, is that like when you're having seasonal allergies, it's not, it's not the dead skin dust that you're reacting to. No, is that, it? that's a, that's an all the time gross thing we do. <laughs> so, so what is it really that's driving our, this, this seasonal reaction? Obviously there's a, there's an annual nature to it, but it always seems to kind of come around a core area of the year for most people. Yeah. So just like animals are waking up and, uh, looking to find a mate and make babies, <laughs> plants are doing the same thing. We all know about plants and pollen and how like bumblebees and bees will pick up pollen and move it from flower to flower. Uh, this is called pollinator facilitated pollination, but there are other types. And one of them is wind, wind assisted or facilitated pollination. And in these ones, instead of getting a, a pollinator, like a bug to fly your, your pollen to the next flower, they just release clouds of it and it floats away and it hopefully hits another plant. Uh, I think our some of our coniferous trees do this. Mm -hmm. They'll just release clouds of pollen, and it's like, good luck, find a tree! And the wind just takes enough of it to uh, facilitate uh, making new seeds, taking it to, to new trees. Mm -hmm. But So that's a lot of what's happening uh, with our spring allergies. Uh, and also animals are starting to, if, the, if you have an animal who gets a heavier and thicker coat in the wintertime, then they're going to be shedding that thicker coat or that, that underlayer. Uh, and then, so that means that there's more pet hair in the air. If you have a dog, you are probably well aware of this. Any long-haired dog, we had retrievers. Huskies, I hear, are super notorious for this one. Um, and even here in Alberta, we can see our jack rabbits. Oh, it is, yeah. Our, our mm -hmm. hairs, they're all transforming from a white because they their coats turn white in the winter and they're all becoming uh, brown again. So they'd be going through some loss of some fur because you don't need thick coats mm -hmm. this is something that even happens with uh, with domestic cats too they, they typically will grow a winter coat that's a little bit uh, coarser and thicker and then we'll lose it again and uh and yeah cat hair can be really really nasty for for allergies and things like that so yeah i mean most most pet hair <laughs> if you're allergic of course it is if you're even if you're not allergic there's just there's a lot more stuff floating around in the air basically but with our our uh pollinators and things so 
One, my PSA. <laughs> there's, there's a couple in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is, you know, like in the winter and you got leaves and stuff and you might leave them. And in the spring, as soon as it's, as soon as the snow melts, you see those people and they're outside and they're like tidying their lawns. Mm-hmm. My, sorry. No, no, no. I just, I always seem to, like, it, it is something I've reflected on in the past couple of years, because it used to be, like, when I was a kid, it was always like, oh, in the fall, you rake up all the leaves, and you mm-hmm. bag them up, and you throw them away for the winter. And then it seemed like people just, like, stopped doing that in the wintertime. And then, and then now it seems like, yeah, people don't do it all in the spring, and I see, I, I do, I always see people, or the landscapers are out, and they're, they're doing this, yeah. Yeah, and I see it in the, in the fall, too, but I guess, I mean, when I worked... Uh, landscape. I worked at landscaping at Wonderland for a while, and one of our first tasks in the spring was blowing all the leaves out from underneath the shrubs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you can pile up some, but if there's always going to be more. But my my uh, ask for people is to leave the leaf litter. So I know it can be unsightly, and people hate it. They hate it on their lawns. But a lot of pollinators, uh, a lot of insects, and some other animals will overwinter or lay eggs in leaf litter because it's a nice like kind of cozy protected ish pile from the from the the elements and if you remove leaf litter as soon as the snow melts especially if you're going to bag it up and uh send it to landfill you're essentially throwing away the next generation of insects uh so you could be throwing away pollinators like moths and butterflies predators of pest insects so pest insects are things like aphids people don't like aphids because they're going to eat your plants uh, and other creatures who eat the aphids, like ladybugs, spiders. I know you don't like them, but they're very good for your <laughs> for the uh, uh, the ecology of your region. Um, and things like salamanders and toads, actually, depending on your region. So we don't have as many of them here, but I know in Ontario, uh, there's a lot more salamanders and things. It's a lot more humid, so those can even overwinter in the leaf litter. And there's actually and because there's so many things living in the leaf litter, it's also a great place for birds to go for meals because they know that these things live in the leaf litter. So by throwing away leaf litter, you're, uh, you're throwing away an incredibly uh, diverse and active little mini ecosystem. Well, it's like, it's like free fertilizer for you almost in free a sense, right? Free fertilizer and free mulch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what does mulch do but lay on top of your soil and keep it warm and moist and suppress weed growth? Mm-hmm. And leaf litter can do all those things. So if you really hate the look of it, uh, I recommend piling it on flower beds and on garden beds and things like that uh, before, like, once you've got all your harvest out, before the snow hits, pile them there. And then in the spring, leave them there if you can and either plant around them or just move them out of the way if you have bulbs and stuff like that. Or you can um, uh, you can take them if you don't like them. And if you have shrubs and trees and stuff, shove them in under the shrubs and trees. <laughs> and then at least, at least they're kind of out of sight. Uh, or... Uh, my parents backed onto natural kind of marshy area, so we just like threw the stuff over the fence so that it stayed, like it stayed alive. It stayed part of the ecosystem. The nutrients from the leaves would be recycled back into the soil, making the soil healthier, which will make your plants healthier. So if you really like your garden and your plants, you need healthy soil. And why would you take away all this amazing nutrient from your soil? Um, and if you really, 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 really hate it, uh, you can try composting it. So if you compost it, it's not so good for the creatures who live in it, but then at least you can compost it and then spread it into your gardens or, or mix it into your soil to help keep your soils healthy. Well, that is that is a good tip. And that is one that I, yeah, I definitely did not know that uh, that that you could, that, yeah, that it had so many, so many good benefits for your, I'm going to have to tell my dad because he always, he always does the big, he'll do the big clean this, this time of year and stuff like that. Yeah. He, he likes to get the leaves out. And, and sure. I, yeah, and I get it. Like they can get, once you start getting, um, like fungi are some of the best 
decomposers, right? And so people are like, it's gross. You get all these like white fungal, like fungi mm. lines. And you're like, yeah, but they're actually breaking down the leaves so that the, so that other creatures can reuse the nutrients. Um, but I get that they're unsightly and people don't like them. So if you have space to make a compost pile, then just like put all your leaves in one pile in a corner um, instead of sending them off to landfill or shove them under some some of your other <laughs> other plants and use them as natural mulch. Mm -hmm. uh, you actually have another uh, little gardening tip that uh, I think some people would 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 re it would really run counter to some people's uh, uh, typical behavior <laughs> when uh, when when tending their garden, especially early in the season. Absolutely, and it has to do with one of the best early uh, food sources for pollinators and bees. Davis, do you know what plant it is? Uh, I do, but that was because I read your research notes ahead of time uh, because I'm a good podcast partner. When it gets to my section, we'll learn the real truth. I'm just kidding. But uh, no, I, I did read it and I was going to make a joke too. It's like, it, it is a good, it's a food source for, for all those insects and stuff, but it actually is, it could be a food source for humans too. It's a bit of a trendy salad ingredient depending on where you're, where you're eating. But, yeah. but uh, I believe if I'm, if I'm, an, I'm going to, I'm gonna make final answer here, Regis. Is it uh, is it dandelion, Sarah? <laughs> it's dandelion. Uh... <laughs> uh, yes, it's dandelion. So dandelions, we all know them. Some of us love them. A lot of people hate them uh, because they're one of the very first flowers to pop out. They're one of the first food sources for bees and other pollinators. So please, please, please leave your dandelions alone in the spring. Once other flowers start coming out have at it. Like I recommend leaving your dandelions all the time, but if you really hate them, just leave them until there's some other flowers out and then your bees will be, your bees and your other pollinators that we need to have plants, uh, they'll be, they'll be well on their way and established. Well, that is a, that's a really, really, really good tip, right? I mean, both of those, both of those. I mean, so many people will, they'll have to go, they'll, you know, they might have to buy potting soil every year regardless right because you got to restore some of the nutrients to the soil for for your plants and things like that but yeah like you can you know you think you can save so much effort really um and money potentially by just using some of those things that are around you and then yeah even just rethinking your your cycle of care a little bit and leaving some of those you know because any plant is a weed exactly if it's i was just gonna yeah. say this <laughs> yeah when i was uh, in landscaping so at wonderland we had to do a lot of the garden maintenance mm. and if you have a garden if you have a garden bed full of flowers and like a little maple tree starts growing you have to pull it because it's a weed in that context so weeds in a lot of a lot of the time unless they're invasive and they're really bad like there's one in ontario called dog strangling vine which is really bad oh we um, got a number here in alberta that we're always um always on the lookout for yeah, yeah. giant hogs weed yeah, um, it's purple something here. There's another one. Purple loosestrife? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a few, actually. Okay, so there are bad ones. But there's also ones that we call weeds just because we don't like them. <laughs> and this is one of them. And many flowers, right? Just like you said, like depending on the context when you're growing, but because of the way that certain flower plants grow and steal from the plants around them yeah. <laughs> are, are, you know, even the most sightly of flowers or some, can be considered weeds. Yeah, I think I have some in my... Uh... I haven't, I haven't addressed one of my garden beds, but it got all these like lovely, what I thought were lovely blue flowers. It was like these <laughs> tall stalks and these little like bell shapes. And I was like, what are these? And I asked a friend, he's like, oh no, you have to take those out. Cause if those like seed, you're never getting rid of them. I forget what they, what they were called, but I didn't, I didn't do anything about them. So I guess mm. this year I'll have more blue flowers taking over that garden bed. <laughs> I think, I think I remembered which the one is in Alberta that we that were, I think it's purple knackweed. Yeah, is one that we're we're always there, there's usually like signs for it on the highway. A lot of it here in Alberta has to do with because 
because we have the border with BC and BC is so much more humid and they grow way different variety of plants than we grow here on the prairie. And there's a lot of trade between the two areas. Um, and, and especially people camping in Alberta that are from BC or people in BC camping in Alberta and bringing firewood with them and things mm -hmm. like that. It, it causes a lot of transfer of species, especially even like insects and things like yeah. that. So there's a number of, of different just considerations you, you should make when you, when you travel across the border like that between the two provinces. Absolutely. The, between the two biomes, really, is the way to kind of yeah, consider it. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you uh, if you have dandelions, leave them alone. Uh, and if you if you really want to be nice to our pollinator friends, you can specifically set up a garden that will attract them and be good for them. So, uh, like I said, we've got bees as pollinators. There's also moths. There's a lot. There's some mammals who do it. They're all over the place. And what they do is. They, they might eat pollen, some of them eat pollen, but most of them are going for nectar. And nectar is a sugary substance that a plant uh, will produce, that an animal comes and it's like, a, it's like sugar water basically, but it's got more nutrients and stuff in it than just sugar water. So they go and they eat that and they just pick up pollen by uh, like static, static electricity, uh, will ad adhere the pollen because they're really, really light to the bug. And then when the bug goes to the next flower, some of that pollen will drop off and that is how we can get new seeds. But we need to make sure that we have flowers all season for our pollinators to get their food from. So uh, if you really want to create like a pollinator friendly garden, I recommend looking at plants that will flower over the whole season. So you can look for plants that will literally flower the entire season. A lot of these, uh, you can get a lot of annuals that do this. David, do you, or Davis, do you ever plant annuals? Um, mostly... Mostly because we were never like a huge like gardener family or anything like that. So mostly we planted like perennials, things that would come back every year. Yeah. And yeah. annuals are the ones that don't come back. You have to buy them from the garden center every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. If you have, if you're in a, like a house or something and you've got gardens, then it just makes sense to plant perennials every, per, plant perennials. Cause then you don't have to spend a lot of money buying plants every year. Uh, as someone who worked doing landscaping and garden beds and stuff, you, you're always planting annuals. Because people want a pop of color and they want a lot of color and they want the flower for the whole season, mm. uh, which you can accomplish with a lot of annual species like um, uh, begonias, marigolds, and geraniums come to mind first. If you deadhead them, which means there's a flower bloom, it, it blooms, it's beautiful, and when it starts to die, you can pop it off. Marigolds, pop, marigolds and geraniums pop off really well. They're like fun to pop off. <laughs> it's fun. Fun gardening work. <laughs> then when you do that, the plant will start, it will produce more blooms even faster uh, because instead of having to spend energy and time like absorbing nutrients back from that dead flower and and eventually having it fall off, you you take that process out. So it goes, oh, I guess I'll move on to the next thing, which is making a new flower. So annuals, uh, you can do this to your perennials too, depending on what you have. Um, some, uh, a lot of annuals will have this multi-flowering thing. If you look on the tag, it will usually tell you when it's expected to flower and then how long it will flower for. Uh, if you look at like the the plant, ta the, the tag Davis was trying to find for his, uh, his garden that he couldn't find. Uh, <laughs> it just plants. says plants of steel on oh. Furnius. <laughs> and I mean, well, he has survived, so. There you go. Uh, yeah, and then perennials, perennials tend to flower more in one season or like one month or, and they don't tend to have as many, they don't rebloom as it were as often, but they are great because you don't have to buy them every year. So if you if you curate the plants you buy for your garden and be like, okay, well, I know these ones flower in early spring. And then like daffodils or crocus, 
or snowdrops or cherry trees. We all know the beautiful cherry trees, right? One of the first flowers that we see out in spring. And they're absolutely lovely. Um, everyone should get one. Uh, but then, uh, so you have some that flower in early spring and then late spring, early summer, you could have things like chives. So also food plants are amazing because to get fruit, you need flowers. So it's just, it's perfect, perfect mm -hmm. combo. So chives, clover, poppies, and lupin or lupine, which is a super beautiful plant. If you don't know what it is, look it up. Lupine, it's amazing. Uh, and then you go mid-season plants, your echinaceas, your cosmos, your snapdragons, yarrow, foxglove. Careful if you have pets, if you have foxglove. Yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful plant, but uh, toxic to your plant or your, your pet friends. And then you can go late season, things like sage, cleom, and sunflower. And then, yeah, if you look for food plants, Go for things like apple and cherry trees because they're going to get beautiful blossoms, usually in earlier spring. And then things like squash and pumpkin is going to be a bit more midsummer. You can even go for things like Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts are such a weird plant to watch grow. Uh, hmm. I watched them at a garden center I worked for and I did not expect it. Uh, so you can go for things like that. Uh, and berry bushes because then there's lots and lots of little flowers and you have fresh berries. Mm -hmm. And if you have not had a fresh blackberry or raspberry off of a, like, well, blackberries off of like a, a bush or raspberries off of a vine. No, raspberries are on a bush. Strawberries on the vines. They're so good. So plant your, plant your food gardens, save yourself money on buying fruit and stuff in the summer and help the pollinator friends. Uh, or... <laughs> <laughs> or... Postscript, 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 post, postscript. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Appendix E. Uh, you can you can also choose plants based on which pollinators you want to attract, because each uh, each type of pollinator, bees are very they're attracted to different types of flowers compared to birds as kind of like a base category. So if you put a plant in that has pendulous flowers, so these are ones that hang down, they're kind of open to the world or really long flowers, especially in red, you might get hummingbird visitors because hummingbirds like red and they like uh, pendulous flowers because hummingbirds hover. You can't see me in the podcast, but Davis, I'm hovering my arms. <laughs> I know. I feel like anytime anyone brings up hummingbirds, they, they, they do the little arm motion where like their elbows will be bent and their hands will be at their shoulders and they'll just kind of flutter around a little bit. These ones, right? Yeah, these exactly. ones, these ones. Exactly. Try it, try it at home. Try to say the word hummingbird without doing the little action. <laughs> Or describe what a hummingbird does. It's like trying to describe something wrong with your car to your mechanic. You're like, well, then it makes this kukunk, kukunk noise. And the mechanic's like, ah, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so hummingbirds, so I try not to flap my arms. Um, they like those sorts of flowers. So you could put up fuchsias, which are one of my absolute favorite flowers. I get so excited. You see them a lot in hanging baskets because they hang down. You could also get them in shrubs, but they're often in hanging baskets. And they're exactly that sort of flower shape. They hang down and the hummingbird can come and flutter and stick its little beak into the hanging flower and get the nectar and bring the pollen to the next flowers. And they're just the best. They're one of my all-time favorite things about spring, fuchsia flowers. And if and since we're talking so much about, you know, some gardening choices you can make uh, for pollinators, especially, there's there's one, one big, you know, design, I guess design is almost the word you could use, but, you know, some decisions you can make on the type of plants that you put in your garden that can be really impactful depending on where you live. Absolutely. So the way we talked, we touched on invasive species with the, the weeds, a lot of the plants we actually plant, they could be classed as invasive or they're at least non-native plants. 
One I planted a lot of uh, at Wonderland are begonias. They are not a native species, but we made a big Canada flag out of them as a flower bed, <laughs> which I always found very funny. Uh, but I <laughs> low bar for gardening humor, I guess. <laughs> I guess irony is lost on theme park designers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so if you if you want to really really help your your native ecosystem and the the plants and animals who live there, then try to plant native species. And a lot of cities and town websites will have lists of information on what plants are pollinator friendly um, and which plants really thrive in that area and and often on like native plants or heritage plants as well, which is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and that's the nice thing about uh, picking those types of species as well, is that you're, you're putting yourself in the wheelhouse of what your soil and your environment is going to handle. Uh, and you're not going to be, you know, you can grow, you know, an apt gardener can grow almost anything anywhere, but you're going to, if you're not an apt gardener like me, who is terrible <laughs> at it and has been trying to keep one fern alive for the better part of a year <laughs> to mixed, mixed results, then uh, yeah, you can pick some more native species and, and you can kind of, you know, you give yourself a little bit of a larger success window, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've experienced this with my own house plants. I mean, I moved from a place where I could have a window open all the time or uh, blinds open all the time and light came in the whole day and my plants were really happy. And then I moved and this winter I lost... I think over half of my plants because I, I'm north facing and I get very little sun. Mm. So my plants got really unhappy. So it's so now I'm buying shade plants <laughs> because they don't need the same sun requirement. So exactly like with outside, make sure they're called zones. So their zones are like they're kind of like bands or like little splotches on the map. And they'll tell you they're, they tell you your basic climate conditions. So relative temperature, relative growing season length, because if you're in uh California, your growing season is very different than if you're in Alberta. And what can survive based on heat and moisture and uh, winters? Because hmm. our winters kill a lot of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but coming out of winter and talking about all of these plants, this was such a joy to talk about because I can talk about plants <laughs> all the time. Uh, but it, we couldn't just talk about plants. We talked about my favorite thing. And Davis, what is one of your favorite things about spring? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, I. it is my turn now. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite things about the springtime is the start of baseball season, baby. Baseball. Baseball. Oh, yes. The great American pastime. Uh, yeah, I... In, in, I didn't know I wasn't always a huge huge baseball fan I kind of became a big baseball fan when my brother started playing I was already like an adult almost well not you know I was like a teenager by the time he started playing and and it just I just from there we just like as a family really got into it and then um one of the thing and it, so so baseball season starting in the springtime that's our loose connection between these two topics <laughs> springtime <laughs> and yeah so and I really but it is it's like and and I look forward every year like I usually play softball with a couple of different teams uh during the spring and the summer and uh and we have a lot of fun and it's just a great it's a great sport and it's a sport I really enjoy and believe it or not there is a ton of science in the sport of baseball and baseball has become a very unique um sport among sort of the major sports for the science that goes into it for um a lot of different things that we'll kind of talk about in terms of like it, it sort of has led the charge in sport, uh, especially recently in this this drive towards certain types of analytics and the way that we use computers to track data. And it's really interesting. And I just, 
Um, I just really love baseball as a sport. And I think, you know, so if, so Sarah got to talk about something that she loves. So I get to talk about something that I love unashamedly and, and shoehorn some science in. Yeah. And base, baseball is not somewhere, something I know much about, but I was talking to a friend who is, she loves sports and she loves math. So she was like, baseball, not great to watch, not great to play, but the stats. And she got very excited about all the stats. So Let's talk stats, David. <laughs> well, yeah, and she's she's right about one of three of those things because it is both very exciting to watch and very exciting to play. That's the thing is mm. I will I will hundred percent I don't I almost want to put the money on it. Just put the money on like I will I could probably make you a baseball fan by the end of this episode. I mean, we'd have to watch some baseball to really for me to really like get you on my side here. But like, but we'll talk about it. We'll get, I'll get into it. I'll get into the romance of baseball and I'll I'll appeal to your theater sensibilities. Trust mm. me on this one. I've Trust me, I've got some. I've got some bullets in the chamber. The last, all right, you're. Uh, you've, you've set up a quite a challenge. The last time I watched a baseball game, I think I was eight or nine, and I went to see the Blue Jays with my mom. And I don't know. We got like a couple innings in, and I was so bored. The most exciting thing I found was the uh, the people who come out to like rake the the sand. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the field the field yeah. crew. And yeah. I was like, oh look, fun patterns. And then. Uh, we we bought me a Blue Jay stuffy and left. So that's what you're up against. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. Okay. All right, eight-year-old Sarah, buckle yourself in. <laughs> yeah. So, but you're right. So we should start. We should start this conversation with with a with a conversation around statistics because like that has really become. I think for people that do not care about baseball, which yes, a fairly large portion of the population, <laughs> you have a hard time convincing them to like baseball or to they're, they're going to dismiss the sport for a variety of different reasons. And, but uh, a lot of people nowadays are, are very aware of the influence that statistics has had on the sport of baseball, mm -hmm. whether you're super familiar with the specific statistics that are being used or what they all kind of mean or why, why it's so significant and things like that. You've probably heard of or seen the movie Moneyball. That's the big one these days that everybody's talking about. Right. Or as most people seen, I'm a big movie buff. Moneyball is, I was thinking about this before the podcast, if I was willing to make this bold statement. <laughs> Moneyball is potentially in my top 10 of movies. Oh, wow. It is a phenomenal film. It's, I mean, it's a great film for I've all the reasons that, that films are great. Um, you know, it's well written. It's well acted. Um, it's got a, you know, it's got a beautiful story. But it's based off of these real events uh, around, specifically around the Oakland Athletics baseball team. And for those who are not super familiar with baseball, the Oak, the Oakland Athletics are one of the lowest payroll teams in the sport. So there are teams like the Los Angeles Dodgers that they're spending over $200 million a year on the players alone, which is, and they're at the top of the league. Like they are, them and the New York Yankees, I think, are both above $210 million in payroll above something what you call like the luxury tax, but there's no salary cap in baseball. So some teams are just, they're larger markets mm -hmm. like, like LA and New York, obviously, and they can just pay way more money. So it's, it's always been this conversation of, well, like, can you just buy yourself a championship essentially? But there are teams like the o Oakland athletics, the Tampa Bay Rays that have way lower payrolls, like magnitudes, less money than groups like the the Dodgers or the Yankees, but are still very competitive in today's sport. And this has come on the back of this style of play called kind of Moneyball. And it's based off of the book that that Billy Bean, who is the manager, the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, wrote about this process. Is, is that who Brad Pitt played? Yes, okay. that is who Brad Pitt plays, <laughs> plays in the movie. That's actually yeah, probably the way to talk about it. So Brad Pitt's character, Billy Bean. And essentially what he did was he 
he with with the help of this other individual who in the movie is actually an amalgamation of a couple different individuals mm. who who played a role in this but basically is in the early 2000s and as we had gone into the you know the internet age a little bit is that statistics had become statistics had always been a huge part of baseball um but it was really in the early 2000s that with the power of computers it really started to become used to make decisions about the game and about who to play and how to play so you gotta go a little bit back into the baseball history so like baseball has been played since the 18th century it is one of the longest standing sports and it's just it's it, it has this sort of mythos attached to it because it's been around for so long. And I didn't uh, know that had been around that long, but it makes sense. You don't need a lot of gear for it, right? It well, exactly right, and mm-hmm. it really is sort of this like this. It goes almost to this primal element, right? Of like how hard can you throw something, <laughs> and how hard can or how fast can someone else react to trying to hit that with something? And that's a very like um, that's a very not archaic. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very almost like Neanderthal esque. <laughs> it's animalistic, right? It's like yeah. And and how fast can you run? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> With a short and, amount of time. <laughs> and that's I think a lot of like why baseball is so um what has has existed so long. It captures so many imaginations and things like that is because each of the different elements of the sport, like batting, pitching, um, running, run, you know, fielding, <laughs> base running. Yeah, they all play to these different elements of like the human physical condition, like how quickly can you track a ball, how quickly can you swing a bat, how hard can you throw a ball, how fast can you run. But the reason that baseball is become such a great model for statistics in sport is because the conditions of baseball and the way the sport is played versus you've got something like hockey is the really popular sport in here in Canada. I love watching hockey. It's a super fast sport. It's super entertaining. The skill level is insane. You've got literal blades attached to your feet. It's kind of <laughs> nuts when you, when you slow down to think about it, but hockey especially is a notoriously difficult sport to track meaningful metrics and mm-hmm. and and nowadays there are some really interesting analytics in hockey that have come about because of the work that's happened with baseball but um hockey by its nature by its speed and the randomness of it and things like that um is very very difficult to track baseball however sorry yeah go ahead is it the same with basketball like i know we just had march madness and uh, my family does a bracket every year mm-hmm. and i choose my teams based on whatever random Thing. This year I chose based on mascots. Mm. Mascots I liked better. Uh, I did really well until like the third round and then all of my teams were out. Uh, but my brother's fiance actually won our bracket this year. She's never done a bracket before. Knows as much as I do about NCAA basketball because my dad and my brother who actually know about it went based on the numbers and whenever there's upsets, which there can easily be an upset, you're like your good teams are just wiped out. So if you chose based on like mascots or where you want a vacation, Sometimes your odds are just as high. <laughs> yeah, the the thing about brackets in especially with March Madness in particular, yeah. the March Madness brackets bracket itself is is it's a statistical topic almost in it, in its own right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's actually great you brought it up because it, it is re- very recently and it's something almost like so many people will popularly do a bracket. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember this story, but Warren Buffett um put something out there uh, where basically he said, if someone can put together a March Madness bracket, that is a hundred percent correct. And I think it even went down to the point you had to predict the score 
um, in the of the final game, oh which God. is common in brackets <laughs> as a tiebreaker. But it was something along those lines. You needed to predict every single matchup correctly. You needed to have a hundred percent perfect bracket. And it's and and he was gonna pay like I think it was like ten million dollars or something if someone could do it. But the reason he did it is because like it is it is basically a statistical impossibility to pick every single one of them right. It's 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 not impossible. Like nothing is mathematically impossible but it's it it's on an order it, it is less probable than winning the lottery that's how much the statistics start to break down on it and and part of it is because of the nature of the tournament you've got 68 teams that go in the first round is between the four the eight like kind of fringe teams to get it to 64 and then it's single elimination all yeah. the way down to a final two teams and 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 it's so so basically there's you are creating this very there's very like random data set so you get like you said these crazy upsets and things like that and that's why you can almost never win a bracket by playing solely to the numbers because oh, yeah. that's also the way like a lot of bracket managed scoring is managed if you know if I'm the 16th seed and I upset the first seed which never happens but <laughs> if if it's that big then I think it's maybe happened once in the history of the tournament sure it's happened at least once. I'd have to double check. I think it has happened once, but the I remember a few years ago it had never happened. Mm. Um, I, anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, you would get sometimes in your bracket you get like fifteen points for that. So that's also why it becomes very difficult to pick a winning March Madness bracket based solely on statistical numbers. Oh, yeah, I've I've done the bracket choosing all the all the higher ranked seeds, and I didn't win. <laughs> I, I did one choosing all the ups like all the upsets. I did very well for the first round. <laughs> Not after that. <laughs> so ba uh, baseball versus hockey versus basketball is where we started with stats. Right, right, and 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 basketball is in a similar boat. Uh, basketball is not quite as fast yeah because you're not on blades on ice yeah um <laughs> and as well just the nature of like of basketball as a sport uh, yeah i think it's a baseball there i meant to say basketball <laughs> but yeah the nature of basketball as, as a sport as well um there is a lot of statistics in in basketball and it's a lot related to the individual player and yeah. their performance very yeah. similar to how it is in baseball for hitters mm -hmm. but basketball is really one of those sports where like you have these bona fide superstars where their level of play is just better than everyone else. And it's just like, it's not even an, it's not even an argument of, of fact to say that, right? Like, yeah. or, or you have a team that has a system that's better than anyone else's system. And that's a really good thing to say as well. Yeah, yeah actually, I think that's a really good point is, is basketball, especially even and hockey too is, is like this as well, because of the speed of hockey, they're, they're system-based sports yeah. where if you don't know exactly where your line mate or your, you know, your bat, you know, your other player is going to be so that you can pass it to him without looking, or you can kind of anticipate how the play unfolds, it becomes, it, you know, that's why it's so important. That's why coaching is so important in some of those sports. The difference with baseball comes in that with you have, even though you have teams of players playing against each other, the moments break down to this battle between the pitcher and the hitter. Yeah. And there are these individual moments and then the repetition of baseball. So it's something that, um, a, what is it? It's couple hundred at bats in a year in a full season is what a what an everyday player will get so then you think about over the course of someone's career and then you think about all the players playing the game over the course of a year and then multiple years you start to generate thousands upon 
thousands of data sets where some of the conditions are the same every time. Mm -hmm. So the home plate is always the exact same distance from the pitching rubber. The mound is at a, the same height in every stadium. It's at the same angle in every stadium. Um, the bases are all the same distance from one another. The strike zone varies because there's still a big element of human error because it's judged by umpires. There's some argument within the sport of, do we start going to having machines make these decisions so the strike zone's the same every time? Because we have this, like, the pitch trackers like you see it if you watch a broadcast the pitcher throws a ball and then the little dot shows up on the screen of like this is exactly where the ball crossed the plate yeah. um so people are sort of saying it's like we can do that for tv now like we could easily replace the umpire strike or we could have a machine that helps us monitor the strike zone that's a whole other discussion within the sport mm -hmm. but even within i mean even within pitchers like they're all going to be they're going to pitch differently but they're they're still things that make something a fastball and things that make a pitch a curveball. So there's like, even within the natural variation, it's still within a, a comparable data set, right? Exactly. And, and we'll even start talk a little bit about, yeah, why those pitches sort of end up, like why there are these kind of archetypes of pitches, even though, yeah, like a different pit, each pitcher's curveball might be slightly different. Um, but this is what's led to this rise of all these different statistics in baseball. And one term that, have you ever heard the term sabermetrics? Nope. Yeah, so <laughs> well, that's fair. If you if you're big into sport, you and sport um, sports that have a lot of statistics, especially, um, you may encounter saber the word sabermetrics. And sabermetrics was invented in 1980, kind of coined in 1980 by this by by a sports writer Bill James, and he kind of called it the objective knowledge about baseball. So it's named after the Society of American Baseball Research. So that's how nice. that's how, how pervasive <laughs> baseball is in like in American culture in in especially where to the point where there are research societies and and tons of institutions based solely around the game of baseball, which is really interesting. But basically what Bill James started to do was with the advent of computers in the 80s and more and more home computing, was he started to track all these measurements. And for years, they had been tracking various things. Um, going all the way back again to the sport in the late 1800s, a man by the name of Henry Chadwick, who sometimes called the father of baseball because he wrote a number of news stories uh, over the years that baseball was sort of being developed as a sport and was becoming popular around around America. Uh, so, and he invented some of the basic statistics measures, um, including like we use something called earned run average still a lot today, which is a measure of how many runs a pitcher is going to allow every nine innings, which is the length of a game. Okay. So that's why it's a weird measurement rather than just like out of 10 or something like that, okay. because a game is nine innings. So, so for example, if you pitch three innings in a game and you give up one run, that's an ERA of, of uh, three. Okay. Yeah. So if you give up, yeah, I think, yeah, over a whole game and it's, it's still used really, really commonly in, in the sport just to try to kind of, it's just a measure of like how effective you are as a pitcher. I've heard of that stat before. I thought it had to do with hitting. Uh, yeah, no, that, yeah. I, and that's a good, that's just like the really runs you earn. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's the, it's the measurement for how many runs are earned against you, essentially. Yeah, that's, that's, that's obvious. Pitcher. And then the one, the kind of the, the comparable for, um, the compare, sort of the comparable for hitters is runs batted in, which is RBIs, which is, okay. um, if I'm up, up at bat and I hit the ball and you're at like second base or whatever, and I hit it and you get to come in and score a run, then I get an RBI. So that for a long time was a popular measure of how good a hitter was. But now 
there's so many other statistics that there's a lot of new school thought of like, oh, well, the RBI and the ERA are actually some of the worst ways of really tracking how, because it doesn't take into, into account all these other things that happen. So then what's happened is like, you know, that's at the very early, uh, the very, very, very beginning of baseball. And then you get into, you know, with computers and stuff, and now teams are starting to hire statisticians and things like that, and they are tracking. So now you're getting into what we call like these advanced metrics. And these are, this is the early days of advanced metrics. So one of the ones that like Bill James created that is still really used a lot now is one of, one of the good ones for pitching is WHIP, W-H-I-P, WHIP. Uh, and it means walks plus hits per inning pitched. And that's a measurement of basically every base runner that a pitcher allows per inning that they're pitching. And it gives you just an idea of how much chance are they, of, are, are they giving up of, a, of giving up a run. Uh, and that was one that was invented. So you're starting to combine these different measurable aspects of the game and then, and then adjust them based on certain averages and things like that to and, make comparisons. And with that one, so that would be any time uh, a player gets on base, mm -hmm. so not just scores a run? Yeah, so okay. in baseball, right, you can you can hit the ball, and if it lands sort of you know within the play, playing field without being caught, and then you make yeah. it to the base, you're safe. You can also get four what's called base on balls, which are pitches that land like outside the strike zone when you're at bat, which is typically what it, the strike zone typically goes from the top of your knee to the where the letters are on the jersey, so just below your shoulder, kind of at the armpit. Um, and that is where the pitcher has to aim when you're up at the plate. And then it's the width of the home plate, which is 17 inches wide. And if they don't, then you get a ball and you get like four of those and you get to go to the base. Yeah. And that's why I was talking about like with the, with the umpire, with the right. strike zone and right. wanting to do it with a computer is because the umpire is trying to watch this imaginary space yeah. and then predict or not predict, but watch the ball come in and, you know, sometimes up to a hundred miles an hour and say, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That touched part of the plate <laughs> in the virtual air box that doesn't exist. So that's why there's some talk of like, well, why not just have computers do this? So there, so the saber metrics are really what formed the basis of what then became this money ball philosophy. So the movie Moneyball is named after the philosophy that was coined in this book. And the idea is, is that you can take some of these metrics like uh, whip, like, uh, especially for hitters, there's a specific one called on base percentage, which is however many times you stand at the plate, how often do you get on base? And there's numbers that are, that are good, right? You know, like if you're, if you're getting on base over 500% of the time, or sorry, over 50% of the time, because they usually with baseball statistics, you refer to them, they're in, they're done in the thousandths and not written as percentages. So you might say like my batting average is 300, which is oh, 0 0.300. That's why they do it that way. Exactly. I was always like, what does this number mean? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like the convention of it. And it, because it makes a little bit more sense than doing it as a percentage and things like that. Um, so and you're dealing with like so many numbers, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we'll get into kind of like what some of those hitting numbers mean as well. Uh, but what happened with Moneyball was then there started to be this push towards, hey, if you put a whole bunch of players together with great on-base percentages, you know, so every guy on the team has at least a 50% chance of getting on base and probably higher when you're combining because now there's a measurement of on-base plus slugging, which is your on-base percentage plus slugging, which is a measurement of the quality of a hit. It gets very complicated, but <laughs> it, it's basically, again, out of a thousand. Um, and you know, point, whatever, whatever. And you add the two together and that is a pretty good measure of a hitter. Um, and then there, again, there's even beyond that, some newer age statistics that start to normalize things. So you can compare that hitter versus like league average. But what, what the, the math suggests, right. Is that if you put a lineup of nine players, hitters together, and all of them have a 50% plus chance of getting on base throughout a game, 
that the, the numbers would suggest that eventually you're going to score some runs based on just the fact that some of these guys are going to get on base all in a row and just like walk guys in. doesn't matter how it happens, but because of the potential, the statistical potential, and then over the course of a season, 162 games with a minimum of 27 at bats in every game for, for your team on offense, that creates this huge statistical, this, this, dearth of statistical information and, and then over a player's career and over a team's career you can really track like oh reasonably you should be able to plug in these types of players and just win and baseball has been around for a very very long time it's a it's sort of a legacy sport so there's a lot of history and the, the they often talk about like the old school baseball people and baseball is typically very resilient to change in certain eras and so there was a lot of resilience towards adopting this type of thought because before this, it was all stuff about like, the, they used to call it like the eye test. So it would be scouts going and watching these players and being like, you know, he looks really good at the plate. His swing looks good. Um, this pitcher, I like his delivery. It's a lot of, I, I like how it looks. Based on like the feeling then. Exactly. So you said there was resilience to this change. Was there resistance to this change? Yeah, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, resistance yeah. resistance to this change among some of the older school baseball thinkers. So when the Oakland Athletics went to attempt this approach, and that's sort of the plot of the movie Moneyball, and it's, and it's excellently well dramatized in that film, is that Billy Bean had a lot of resistance from both his own organization and from other people in baseball and the fan base that were basically calling him crazy for trying this. But he had to because his team, they never had enough money to compete with other teams, especially in, in, in a time when free agents, you know, people that are, have played a certain number of years and then are allowed to go on kind of the quote unquote, the open market and teams yeah. sort of bid for their services. They... They allowed, you know, they couldn't compete in that market. They couldn't pay these players competitive enough. You know, if I can offer a guy $30 million a year to come play for me and you can only offer him $5 million a year because that's, you know, that's already 10% of your whole team's budget or whatever. Yeah. How, why is the superstar player going to come play for you for $3 million, yeah. right? Or $5 million. So he had to take this different approach and use these statistics with the help of some other really smart people to take advantage of them. And everyone thought he was crazy. And the team actually, they went on like a 21 or something game win streak, which is like a, which is a baseball record. I think it's since been broken, but it really started to show people that, oh, if you use these statistics, you might be able to win, you know, just based off of the, the, the analytics alone. And Billy Bean ultimately did not end up winning a World Series. And then the plot of Moneyball is kind of like they don't win. Uh, but he gets, but the Red Sox then famously like tried to recruit him, but decided to adopt this methodology after this year. Now, the Red Sox are a big market team, a team that's existed since baseball started being played. But they had been, you know, they like they had been literally cursed. Like that was the terminology that the Boston Red Sox fans used for it, that the team was cursed and they couldn't win a World Series. And then it was the application of both, you know, obviously they had a ton of money to spend. And then two, the use of these sabermetrics and these really advanced moneyball analytics. And they won a World Series in 2004. And that and then there was a number of articles that were published about how this change in the way the game was managed came about. And that's how we came to have like movies like Moneyball and stuff. But essentially it it marked this change in how the game of baseball was managed and played. Wow. Mm-hmm pretty impressive yeah so you know it's it's really really crazy and and now you get to this point 
in baseball where they have something called uh now they're in what what is often referred to as the stat cast era so this is something that i think the nerd who watches baseball would really enjoy mm. um or why you know why baseball is this sort of like science sport the to the sport, extreme yeah. Yeah, yeah is because now with the uh, with the power of the cameras that we have and the computing technology that we have they are literally able to track basically every measurable aspect of a baseball game so the radar gun has has been one of the earliest tools in baseball to tell you how fast a pitch is moving yeah now they can tell you how quick was your reaction speed when the ball was hit versus when the fielder took their first step how efficient was that fielder's route from where they started to where the ball ended up versus like a optimum straight line. I knew it was going to be here versus the route that they actually took the deviation and then, and saying, okay, that fielder takes like 89% efficient route. So you might, they might not be a suitable center fielder. And, <laughs> and it's all these things. So StatCast has allowed the tracking of some insane stuff. And it is once again, changing how baseball is played. Uh, and so it's just, it's so interesting, you know, where you have this, a very like macho sport in baseball and almost now like entirely dictated by this level of like sport performance where the guys are like watching film of pitchers like on the bench on iPads, like trying to see the delivery and get that little bit of advantage to like how they can handle the ball and stuff like that. And it's created some problems too in like cheating in the sport and stuff like that with obviously there was this big, I don't, did you hear about the the Houston Astros from a few years ago? I don't know. So the, yeah, that's fair. This was a, it was a big story in baseball, and it was that they um, basically the the Houston Astros were cheating one okay. year, and this year they ended up winning the World Series. So they had oh. been cheating the year that they won. They won it all. That's not allowed. Yeah, it's been really really bad. <laughs> okay. It's been very bad for the sport of baseball, unfortunately. But you know, it's the ad. It's not so much the statistical stuff that allowed them to cheat. It's the but it's it is the kind of wireless technology. But basically, what was happening is they had someone out in, and this has been done for a long time. So it's not just because like now we have cell phones that you can do this. <laughs> but they would have someone at home games, basically out at center field with a pair of binoculars. And they would be stealing the signs of the pitcher. Oh. So the so the the catcher gives a sign to yeah. so that he knows what the pitcher is going to throw. Because some of these pitchers throw like a slider and it's going to break eight or ten inches to one side. And so you need to know what's coming to, in order to catch it properly. Yeah. And to try and you because you're you're strategizing on how to beat the hitter. That's one thing I do know about baseball. Mm -hmm. There's there's one baseball movie that I oh yeah watched. it's called Summer's Catch. It's from the, I think it's from I don't the even early, think I heard of that one. It's from the early 2000s. It's Freddie Prince Jr. and Jessica Biel. <laughs> uh, and he's a pitcher. So oh. this is, I, that's <laughs> where a lot of okay. my baseball knowledge comes from. You, you gotta watch them. They're, okay. I've what, seen Moneyball too. Yeah. Well, baseball, uh, as an aside though, baseball is probably the best sport of which there are movies made. It is. Watching a movie uh, where people play baseball makes baseball much more exciting than watching a whole game uh -huh. for me because it's just highlights. Well, and that, and that's the thing, and 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 I'll do this aside now because we're talking about it. But like, this is why I think like baseball, why I love baseball so much, and like I I love I love watching a lot of sport because I really enjoy seeing human beings perform at that at that level. So I like I love the Olympics and just seeing people at peak performance and what the human body can do in some of like, whether it's, whether it's individual sports like gymnastics or certain like alpine sports or all those sorts of things or team sports. And you're watching like how well can a group of people coordinate yeah. together? Yeah. Right. I love that kind of stuff. And, but what I think about baseball is so compelling is baseball is really theater on like the grant. It's, it's really, it's, it's theater and it's, it's like, it's 
There's a great line in the movie Moneyball, which I think perfectly sums up the sport. And it comes at a point in the movie that is like, it's the emotional climax of the movie. It's a super cute moment. It Like I tear up every time I watch it. And and what Jonah Hill's character says in this moment is, he, or sorry, what Billy Bean, uh, Brad Pitt's character says in this moment is he just sort of goes like, how can you not be romantic about baseball? And because baseball is all of these stories and it's all of these, because it's this battle, this moment between the pitcher and the hitter and a chance to, you know, win the world series. It's, it's the bottom of the ninth with two out one man on, and you can win the game for your team. It's, it's the blue Jays, you know, touch them all Joe moment. Um, I, I know you're probably not super. I have no mean, idea what that yeah, is. <laughs> so that's like, there's this, you know, that's what in 93, when the blue Jays won the world series, uh, Joe Carter, who was one of the best players, one of the best players ever and one of the best Blue Jays ever hits a home run that wins the game. And the play call is touch them all, Joe, you'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. And there's this photo of, of Joe Carter throwing his bat up and jumping up, like jumping as he's, as he's heading around the bases and the Blue Jays have have won back-to-back world series. And it is, you know, it's, it's so baseball has all these moments for every fandom that are like these legendary moments. Uh, that become like theater and and it just it's it's a very human sport and the way that people play it like for example i was watching it last night the jays were playing the the angels and there's a player on the angels named albert pujols who's one of the greatest players of all time and he's going to go to the hall of fame he's in kind of his last year of playing he's one of the greatest hitters of all time and so there's a young player on the blue jays who's been playing for a few years now and they were kind of chatting and then they go to kind of separate before the beginning of the game because the players are pretty chummy with each other. And then he sort of, the, the player on the Blue Jays, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., sort of motions over, and he's like kind of our young superstar. He motions over to the bench to this younger player who's like just only only just started playing like in the major leagues, right? Okay. He's been de- in development for a long time. To calls him over to like meet Albert Pujols because he admired Albert Pujols and he wore actually like the jersey number that he wore was partly because he admired this player. And then, you know, and Albert Pujols is like one of the nicest guys ever. So like, you know, comes over and is like, you know, they're talking and you can, and, the, and obviously like, you know, the the uh, the voyeurism sports broadcasters kind of got the camera <laughs> on them. And, uh, and you know, and, and Pujols is like clapping the kid on the shoulder and then, and then the kid goes on to, um, to have the the player's name is Santiago Espinal. He goes on to have just this monster game. Uh, he hits three for five. The Jays crush the Angels, and it's this super cool moment because like you got this young player, and it's like he gets to meet kind of his idol. Then he goes on to have like this stellar game, and like everybody's like, "Who is this kid?" And like, "Why is he not playing all the time?" And baseball is just full of those stories. Every single game, there's those types of stories or those moments. And I think that that's, for me, that's what's always really attracted to me to the sport. And like what I think sometimes can attract people that aren't big sports fans to it is this, if you can get into the theater of it almost. I don't know. It, yeah. yeah like it sort of reminds, like, like, for example, like a lot of people are still into like um, WWE, right? Like pro- professional wrestling, even though like, yeah, we know professional wrestling is not real, but it doesn't make the drama of it any less exciting, right? Or like when we buy into those things. So I think it's sort of similar to that, but that's not so much a science thing. That's just me like waxing poetic about a sport I like. <laughs> but but with the, the, it's the players themselves, right? And they play so often that you can get fairly consistent stats about them. But one player having a, a beautiful moment with a, an idol can affect the game so much it seems to me like that must come into play because it's a team sport, but it's so individual, right? Like when exactly. you're when you're hitting, 
it's just you versus the pitcher. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm getting hit with a ball would suck a lot. And uh, like sliding into a base or like, I mean, I don't expect this happens very much at the pro league, but like hitting running into another player. Oh, it happens a lot, ball. actually. <laughs> well, it does because uh, well, there's there's all sorts of different circumstances that crazy things happen in baseball. Yeah. There was a crazy play in last night's game <laughs> where a player specifically slid in a way to try to obstruct the other player because you can legally do that as long as you're within reach of the base, but it's become a bit of a faux pas in uh, certain in certain situations. But because he did it, no one was out, and then the Blue Jays went on to score seven runs that inning. Wow. So yeah, so there's these insane <laughs> moments that happen from time to time that's pretty cool i should watch highlight reels um <laughs> but it's it's overall a non-contact yes very individual sport yep. which i think is part of the reason that stats work because when you have a yes. team your dynamics get far more uh alive it, exactly and that's that's something that comes up a lot with with basketball like you brought up earlier and why sometimes it's harder to track certain types of statistics or why the debate in basketball continues to rage about who the greatest of all time was yeah you know you know because <laughs> because a lot of people are going to say michael jordan a lot of people of our generation are going to say michael jordan because that's who we grew up with kind of yeah. um you know a lot of people nowadays are going to say oh well lebron kind of challenges that for certain reasons or you know kobe had his place and things like that or mm-hmm. you even go back in time and like larry bird and will chamberlain guys who had like rules had to be changed so they wouldn't be so dominant you know so you got all these players but there's a lot more debate and one of the ones that comes up a lot about Jordan is that Jordan was playing with a team that was full of superstars I'm not disparaging Michael Jordan like I like spoiler alert I think Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time but he was playing with these teams and that's what the counter argument often is is that he was playing oh well how much can you consider how good he was without Scottie Pippen kind of thing Mm -hmm. right and all of these considerations um, but you don't always have that for baseball, yeah. Yeah, and the, it's, uh, when I said alive, the, the better term that I should use is variables. Right? When you have a team sport, you're working with, like basketball, you have five indiv- individual bari- uh, variables on court all interacting with each other, whereas in baseball, you have a one-on-one variable. Exactly. And you have things like, weather and animals running on the field which is one of my favorite things about baseball is when like cats get on the field did you see that one did you see that video of the cat getting on the field i've seen a few yeah there was one just like birds and squirrels from like a week ago (laughs) oh i didn't see it recently yeah it's pretty funny (laughs) one of my favorite things um but yeah you have like your variables are much more much more control like the fewer variables the more the easier it is the more meaningful your statistics are and the more and that's the other thing too is like with some of these advanced statistics now is it involves combining different numbers and then doing it like doing various measurement adjustments on them like dividing them by certain numbers or or adjusting them to certain averages and those aren't things that you can do when your numbers aren't super like when there are too many variables on individual numbers because then oh if i combine this measure with this measure but both of them have this huge degree of uncertainty well now i've like potentially multiplied those (laughs) that level of uncertainty and now i have a number that looks pretty but is meaningless yeah Mm -hmm. yeah because in science experiments i was trying to reduce the number of variables right exactly or like algebra like a math equation that has one variable is way easier to solve than one that has three Mm -hmm. and and one of the cool things about sports statistics especially because like a team doesn't have to publish on their numbers, right? They're not academics. They're not out. You know, some some sports scientists that work for teams will publish. But, you know, these teams, they can try different statistics or different measurements or or even like the, the um, you know, the media people can try different measurements because, you know, again, we're not publishing on it. And we are, you're making these speculative guesses of, well, I think this measurement might be meaningful in baseball. Oh, it turns out it's not. And now what's really interesting about the pioneering work that baseball has done in this type of game management is that other sports are starting to adopt 
this same type of of statistical analysis to make decisions. So now you are starting to see it in hockey where they have these new measurements that are really complicated and I don't even really understand some of them. And they're starting to try to make decisions based on like how these metrics are designed. And then they're starting to realize, oh, okay, well, we need to tweak this metric here or tweak this metric here. Very cool. It's quite, it's quite neat. And the stat cast, the, the stat cast stuff, it, it literally, they now call all the statistics they call it the stat cast era because we only started measuring this about, you know, nine years ago now and thinking about in baseball. And so they started to say like, oh, this player has the highest like exit ball velocity. So that's the speed at which the ball leaves the bat when it's been hit of everybody since the stat cast era began because there aren't numbers from a certain time before that. And it has led to this, uh, some changes in the sport. And one of the interesting things that it's led to is now one of the things they can measure is the speed at which the ball is rotating when it's thrown. So this is super (laughs) meaningful for pitchers, right? Because you started talking about like, you know, like one of the things, one of the most common knowledge pieces about baseball, right, is that there are different pitches Mm -hmm. and that the pitches have different types of movement on them or they do different things. And pitching is really often referred to as an art because of this. One, because you're trying to hit this imaginary square in space that's slightly <laughs> different for every hitter and every hitter is going to have a different swing path and all these things and you're trying to get them to miss the ball basically and it's pretty far away right it's how far it's it's 66 and 66 feet and six inches i believe it, it's because it's a very exact measurement yeah. it's it's and you know it's 90 feet to each base and things like that so it's there's very 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 specific measurements about hitting and that's why that's again why the statistics have become so meaningful and the battle between pitcher and hitter has become so interesting is because it is literally it's like an evolutionary arms race being played out in sport because there have been various eras in baseball with slightly different rule changes and things like that where sometimes the hitter is really favored and there's lots of hitting and home runs and things like that and sometimes the pitcher is really favored and there's lots of strikeouts and things like that and they tend to go back and forth and even to the point where okay you know, hitters are now all looking for a certain type of fastball or they're, you know, the strategy, the meta strategy is kind of to hit certain types of pitches. Mm-hmm. So pitchers are now, they're going to use less fastball. So for example, in the last 10 years, it's something like now there's, there's been about an 8% reduction in fastballs across the league rate, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, you know, to drop from like 58% to about 50%. But that we're talking about like thousands and yeah. thousands of <laughs> fastballs, which are yeah. the easiest ball to hit. But, but the reason the, the revolutions per minute becomes so important is that the different pitches spin in different ways and the amount of spin makes the hit, the pitches basically harder to hit. And the, what the league, and now there's been some concern that for, for as long as pitching has existed, there's been, um, pitchers have used, sometimes have used foreign substances to alter the ball so that it behaves differently. Like spitball? Exactly. <laughs> the literal spitball is an actual baseball pitch. It actually goes all the way back to the early night, like 1901 and stuff like oh. that, when when the spitball was finally outlawed, essentially, or <laughs> 1910 or something. So gross. Yeah, and so literally what pitchers would do is they would spit on their hands and on the baseball so that it would slip out of their hands. And this is at a time when they weren't throwing as hard and and with as much spin because the the art hadn't developed as far but they were putting the spit on it so the ball would slip out of their hands it would be harder for the hitter to hit it because it's behaving in a random way humans are gross yeah (laughs) well or even now like because the the way the baseball moves through space is because of the threads on the baseball so some pitchers have been suspended because they've hidden like nail files in their caps so they could file down the uh the threads so that their finger will have a better spot to 
grip so that they can whip the ball out of their hand faster and get more break. So there's been all these things throughout history, but now they're using revolutions per minute because there's, there's some belief in sport that a lot of pitchers are starting to do this, but more so now, less about trying to slick the ball up so it slips out of your hand because these guys are throwing so hard. Rather, they're using things like pine tar, which typically the guys put on their bats so the bats don't come flying out of their hands every time they swing but they're hiding like a patch of pine tar on their cap so they can get a little bit on their fingertips. So the ball is stickier when it's released so they can get more spin on it and they have slightly better control. So what the major leagues are starting to do now is they're starting to monitor the spin rate of pitches, which is something that teams have started to do because it tells you how effective a pitcher is or how effective their break, breaking ball is or anything like that. But now the major leagues are saying like, oh, this pitcher seems to be spinning the ball way faster than last season. That's way outside what like normal progression would be like for someone practicing all the time or what we've seen over the years for this player. We should maybe take a bunch of their balls out of play in their next start and inspect them to see if they're covered in pine tar. Ah. Hasn't been anything that's come out from this just yet. It's, it's just this year that they're starting to really investigate this. Um, but there's been some interesting some interesting discussion among baseball uh, players and, and uh, managers and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something you don't want to allow. Like, that's just cheating. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of, have you seen the replacements? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so and that's exactly like it. Mm-hmm. Early 2000s. Most of my movie references will be from the early 2000s. <laughs> uh, it's a football one where... Uh, there's one team and the players go on strike because they want more money. Mm-hmm. So they bring in the replacements who yeah. are like people who like may, like used to play and they just kind of like mix them all together. And uh, Keanu Reeves is the lead. But there's one guy who's like, he's really fast, but he can't catch. So at one point they put something really sticky on his hands. So he catches the ball, but then he can't get, he can't let go of the ball. <laughs> uh, so that's what I was thinking of when you were talking about mm-hmm. sticky hands. <laughs> well, <sports>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that's, uh, that's one of the ways that like, some of these statistical tools and some of these measurement tools are being used to like help police the sport. Uh, but yeah, the number of different pitches that are out there are really interesting. A lot of it's just based on like how you spin the ball. Mm-hmm. So like a fastball spins with 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 like backspin, and the and depending on the type of fastball that you throw, and because of how hard pitchers are throwing now, sometimes fastballs are called like a rising fastball, like a four seam fastball, sometimes referred to as a rising fastball, because it has this optical illusion of appearing as though it's rising on its way to home plate aerodynamically. That's not physically possible. The ball is not actually rising like an airplane. But what's happening is that the ball is being thrown at a speed that the human eye doesn't predict it's being thrown at. And the spin can be deceptive in that your brain, because your brain is doing all this geometry all the time and these complex calculations, especially when you've trained all your life to hit a baseball. (laughs) But your brain is still going to think the ball is going to come in slightly lower or dip down because of the arc of its throw and fall slightly lower because you might think it's at a different speed and then you're going to swing underneath it. So it has this impression to the hitter's eye as like rising right at the very end. Whereas a lot, and then you can throw other pitches that actually do break. So like a a curveball has been shown to have like actual measurable break. Um, So basically you throw the ball with top spin. So the ball is spinning over itself as it's heading towards home plate. And this creates some vortex zones and kind of takes the spin off of it. So the ball dies as it's hitting home plate. And then people have a tendency to swing over it or, or ground it into the dirt. And then it's an easier play to make. Um, And basically what this all comes down to is really you're trying to deceive the hitter. 
because hitting is sometimes by people who are big baseball historians, right, who are going to be super biased writers on this subject. They sometimes refer to hitting as like the most difficult single interaction in sport or I can't remember what the exact quote is. You know, I think that that's something you would like I, I would say is up for a fair amount of debate. Like I think yeah. some of the things I see, you know, gymnasts, for example, do in the Olympics yeah. or stuff like that. I'm like, well, that's pretty extreme. Or like yeah. even like a world record hammer toss, for example, right? Yeah. Like I think every sport has its challenges. And if you're a pro at that sport and you're the mm-hmm. best at that sport, then you're uh, you're operating on a different level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There There is something to be said, however, about that whole discussion in that the math, like if you were to purely just look at like, okay, well, how fast the ball travels this distance and how the human eye is basically able to see things and how fast you can swing a bat, that it should be mathematically impossible to hit. That's sort of what like the pure physics suggests. There's a lot more things at play, but that does still really hold true. But it really is like, basically you have to start your swing before the ball leaves the hand and you have a split second to make a decision on what the ball is going to do. And some of these pitchers are able to throw a ball that's going to head straight. Some of them are going to curve down. Some of them are going to slide across, right? So you have to be ready for all of these different things. And it's happening in this split second. It brings up a really interesting uh, dynamic between the stats of baseball and the stats that people are looking at. They're looking at numbers and they're they're combining this versus the in-the-moment action. Like uh, a, a, a hitter is not going to be thinking of any of this right they're they're just going to be they're going to be trying to be in flow and they're going to try to react and trust their training to hit it and to know and going back to that like old school baseball thing of like oh i just know mm-hmm. right whereas all the people behind like behind the plate now are i don't know if that's a thing in baseball the thing you say in baseball but like the, the catchers people, yeah or no, oh off, i see yeah all the people who are all the statisticians and stuff yeah yeah the managers and the general managers and things like that yeah yeah it's all it's all super analytical and cerebral Mm. whereas if you're on the field and you're playing it's like it's reaction speed and it's just like that that impulse and that that instinct and yeah yeah. and that's a really good point as well right like like you said about um the hitter they don't have to think through every element of their swing. They've done it so many times. And to the point where like the science really shows, and this is true for most sports or most motor function things, someone who's reached that kind of virtuoso level of something. um, If you get them, if you try to get a hitter to like slow down and think, okay, when you go to hit, hit, think through every part of your swing, it's actually detrimental to their performance because it interrupts the brain's (laughs) ability to just do what it's like. The brain has created this perfect pathway for it. And then by thinking about it, your brain has to sort of slow down at each step again and go, wait a second, do I know what I'm doing? But your brain is like, no, 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 no. I know what I'm doing. Just trust me on this one, buddy. (laughs) And you're, and, and that's what it, then it becomes this really interesting thing. This almost this psychology aspect of, of baseball. Because baseball is really this sport that's built around failure. And like we were talking about with hitting being so hard. So, and one of the things about just one little extra science thing about hitting, the the hitting, like being a hitter that's so interesting is that the the average human eye, so we have like what's called a field of vision, yeah. right? And that is, if you think about your field of vision as something that can be measured in degrees, like a circle or a semicircle, right? Like your protractor essentially, right? Because you can actually test your own vision. Um, your peripherals are a good one to do. There, I think, are you supposed to put your arm, you're supposed to go to arm's length, I believe, right? I think so. I always just put my arms out to the side. Mm-hmm. And when you can't, you look forward. And when you, when you lose sight of your hands, that's the edge of your field of vision. Yeah. And we, and we have forward facing eyes like predators. So we have a, a more limited field of vision mm-hmm. compared to something like a goat, which I have to share. Uh, goats <laughs> have square pupils and eyes on like the side of their head. So they have uh, over, I think, 
I've read one place that said 270 degree field of vision mm-hmm. and other places say over 300. So they can see almost all the way around them. Whereas yeah. we can't. Yeah, we're getting somewhere. We're just <laughs> under 180, but you can test it. Yeah. yeah, by putting your hands in front of your head and then and then sort of um, opening your arms up till your shoulders are like parallel to your body or in line with your body. To and like then, a T shape. Yeah, yeah, into it like, yeah, into a T pose until, and basically you're just like focusing on either palm until your hand basically disappears. And that's your field of vision. And most of us are in the range of like 170 to 180 degrees. But yeah, so if you consider that each of those, those degrees of the compass along your field of vision, the human, the human eye can typically track something moving at 70 degrees per second across your field of vision. That's kind of the max that most of us can do. The average baseball player is actually up to like 120 degrees and so they're in this exceptional category but the baseball is traveling towards the home towards home plate at in a split second and it's moving it up to 500 degrees per second so (laughs) so it becomes like so that's why the the math sort of suggests that hitting is basically impossible but but then the, the studies have shown that various hitters are doing certain different types of tricks to try to hit where some hitters are trying to track the ball the whole way and then make like an educated guess about where it's supposed to end up but based off of the first few seconds that you see it whereas other hitters what their eye is sort of doing in a split second is seeing where the ball is being thrown from and then and making a prediction about the midpoint of the delivery like the mid part of the arc and then snapping to sort of the five feet in front of the plate or river where you more have to react to what it's doing or where it's going to actually end up and then swinging that way. So it's sort of, you know, the, the little league coach always says, oh, we'll keep your eye on the ball. But when the ball is being thrown at hundred miles per hour and your eye literally can't take that many degrees of movement per second, you have to come up with some, your brain has to do some other shortcuts. And it's something that again, comes with this like lifetime of training to hit a ball. And, and basically what this means is that like a hitter is going to fail well over 70% of the time. So in in baseball, again, we were talking about averages often called like the hundreds. So if you are a hitter who hits 300 for your career, that means that 30% of the time you hit a ball, it lands somewhere on the field and you get a base, at least one. If you hit 300 for a full career, like say you played 10 years and you hit 300 on the end of your career, you would probably make it into the Hall of Fame. You would probably make millions and millions and millions of dollars a year by the time you hit free agency because, and you would be like a superstar player. You would probably be one of the best players on your team because it is so hard to hit consistently. And the toll so think about this is like you are getting paid millions of dollars to play a sport and you are going to fail 70% of the time. Yeah, that's wild to me. Like we keep mentioning gymnastics because I did gymnastics. Uh, I, I come from that world and in gymnastics, it's about perfection, right? I mean, you fail 5% of the time and it's like, oh no, you're not in contention. Like you have to, you have to hit, right? It's actually called hitting your routines. If you get through your routine, you don't fall. You have to like, you have to hit your routines and you have to hit all your moves and you have to... You have to like accomplish these things and any, any level of failure, any, any rate of failure at a, at a high level means that you're just not competing. So it's, it's a very, it's interesting to, to see how different those sports are. And if you want to talk about like sports that seem impossible, <laughs> I would, I would put gymnastics very high on the list 
sports. Like, I did gymnastics, and I look at gymnasts, and I go, I don't know how you're doing this. How are you? And the beam? But anyway, we're distracted. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, like, I, because I totally agree with you, right? Like, it, it is. Yeah. Gymnastics, especially, is some of the, some of the stuff that some of the gymnasts, or some of the, um, some of the various events in gymnastics, yeah. I guess that's what they call them usually. Yes. Yeah, some of them blow my mind. Like, I have no idea. And, and are things that I'm like, oh, my God, I would, the things I would trade for that ability or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> like obviously, I know you could train it, but, like, d- don't really have the time to become a pommel horse athlete. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> as fair. much as much as I would love to have that ability. Or I don't want to mess up my shoulders yeah. trying to do rings at 27 years old. Like, <laughs> it's not going to happen. I've, I've, I've gone down this route. <laughs> yeah. But it's a, like, it's a sport where failure is really unacceptable, which makes it a very psychological sport, which you were saying baseball is a super psychological sport, but for maybe the opposite. Oh, exactly, right? So, I mean, we've been talking a lot about hitters, and, and we'll stick with that conversation a little bit, and then we'll try to throw in a little bit, like, on the other side, what it's throw like to be a in. pitcher. Ah, <laughs> yeah, man, you're just all over the puns today. Uh, <laughs> I gotta throw them in. It, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same joke. I yeah. don't get points for that one. But, yeah, so... You know, you're a hitter and, and the pitcher is going to throw, you know, a fastball that's 95 and maybe a changeup that's 87 and you're going to have to adjust to it all the time. And then maybe they've got a curveball or a slider and, so you're, and then they're going to be mixing all those pitches up and you're trying to, you know, swing as hard as you can and hit these things. And you're going to fail a lot of the time. And players will go through these cycles, you know, slumps and they won't hit and then they'll go through hot streaks. And even there's a lot of debate, you know, in sport in general about like, do, do hot streaks exist? Sometimes it's in basketball. Um, it kind of comes from basketball, but there's a statistical sort of, um, what's the word for like when your brain does something and it's not always right. It's like a, uh, anyway, um, it's so in basketball, there's something sometimes called the hot hand fallacy. Yeah. And it comes about from this belief that if you, Sarah are hitting a bunch of three point shots, I should keep passing you the ball because you got the hot hand and you're going to keep hitting three-point shots. Yeah. Statistically, that is false. In in real statistics, when you have enough data points to be meaningful, that proves to not really be that true. And that's why they call it the hot hand fallacy is because our brains, our cognitive dissonance sort of things, oh, well, of course, Sarah's hitting all of these shots. She's killing it. We've got to keep feeding her the ball. And even within an individual game, that may still hold true because maybe you have a size advantage against the person that you're playing against or you're faster than them or whatever it is, right? So the matchups are really in your favor. And the more shots you hit, the more confident you are that you're going to hit the next one. Exactly. But again, this is this this fallacy. It happens a lot to gamblers, the hot hand fallacy. Yeah. Um, my game of my poison of choice when I gamble, when that's allowed um, in person. I, I like to play craps because the, the house odds are a little bit better. And part of the reason I like to play craps is because every, every so often, or even when you're betting on the table and you're not the thrower, someone, a human being is throwing the dice. So, and I like playing craps because I like to be the thrower from time to time because I like to think that I have control over the outcome, even though I'm still throwing dice. To the point where this is a bit of an, again, a bit of an aside. We could have to do a whole episode on gambling for mm-hmm. sure. But to the point where there are some people, I don't know how commonplace this is really, where they will have a craps table in their home and they will practice because the craps table, again, is like a defined space yeah. and they will practice their their throw oh. to because they think that they can alter the potential for certain outcomes. And I have certain, and I mean, it's a superstition thing, but like when I throw craps, I always make sure that the dice show eight and then I throw them and I throw them a very specific way. It seems super weird. It's definitely more superstition than it is science, for sure. Superstition is a big part of sports too, right? Exactly. And it's this psychology of like these things. So again, it's this hot hand fallacy of like, 
if someone has rolled really well or hit really well or shot really well in a sport, you sort of want to keep giving them the ball. But over statistical time or in a statistical data set, that doesn't necessarily hold up. Yeah, and that that uh, issue doesn't come up as much in gymnastics, I find, because gymnastics is about consistency. Like, you need to be really good and you need to be able to do, like, if you can do really big tricks mm. uh, and high scoring tricks, then your scoring potential is higher. But uh, uh, coaches, especially if they're choosing for, like, an Olympic team or something, consistency outranks, can outrank big trick potential. Because if you have, like, a most amazing vault, but you're only hitting it 80% of the time, that's not good enough. Mm. You want someone who's going to have a a less impressive vault, but they hit it 95% of the time, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a... It's it's a it's a different field, but like from basketball, absolutely. I mean, you see it, and sometimes one person goes, and you're like, "Wow, they hit nine threes in that game!" Like, good thing they kept passing them the ball. Mm-hmm. But other times, they hit three in a row, and then they keep passing them the ball, and they miss the next six. <laughs> and and, yeah, and that's one of the interesting things too about then the psychology within the sport is that like, especially with basketball, this is true. Is like you might have someone who, yeah, one game they hit six out of six three-pointers, and the next game they're, they're going to miss the first three they take. Yeah. But often in basketball, they say it's like, well, you've got to keep shooting those shots. Yeah, you just got to keep shooting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because, you know, because again, you might have the luck acting on the other end where you're not going to get the bounces and stuff. Because you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Did we, did we make that quote? Did we not have that quote in last week's episode? Probably. Too? I think we did. Um... Yeah, and and so so with baseball, there's been even to the point now there when they recruit players, some teams use like a personality test, oh. and there are certain personality traits that you're looking for in certain players or certain types of players, and 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 what has there's not a ton of studies that have come out about this because one because it's sort of it becomes like a little bit of like the secret sauce sort of mm-hmm. thing of like oh well we have this methodology for determining if someone's a player we want to draft say and we don't want to share that with the world because. Yeah we think we're the best at it and we don't want everyone else to be the best at it because we're trying to win World Series. Um, but they have really started to look at these different characteristics and they have started to sh- see that there are higher incidents of certain characteristics around like resiliency and self-confidence, especially that self-assuredness in baseball players. Because if you are in the middle of an 0 for 27 slump, which is abysmal, by the way, that's bad in baseball if you go 27 at bats without getting a hit that's games and games of not not contributing offensively yeah and but the best players are the ones that can keep going out and just doing everything the same way and they're not getting in their head too much they're not trying to change their swing they're not coming out of their delivery changing how they're doing things just because they're struggling and it's super natural like it's it's actually the fact like you are such an excellent athlete because you can you can basically hold back on that you know evolutionary mental psychology shortcut where your brain is like well change things because it's not working and the the opposite is true because no i'm a highly trained athlete i need to continue to stay within what i know yeah you need to trust your training yes in gymnastics is big like if you fall or you get into especially if you fall and then you have to compete again or you have to compete on another event or you're suddenly in a place with more people or you think like this is a competition i have to try harder it's practice the way you want to compete so you your routines at the gym should be done as like the same way that you're going to do them uh in front of other people because that's once you get into that and there's all these other variables you need to trust your training and that's a really good point and it's just i think it I, he's, it's a good an interesting kind of parallel i think among all sport really. yeah oh yeah trust your training like mm-hmm. and it's even in theater 
rehearse the way you want to perform. Yep. Because once you get into the into the game or into the performance, what are you going to do? You're going to be trying to be in the moment and you're not going to be thinking about all these details. So you need to have them like ingrained in your body. Mm-hmm. I think it I think it really leads to a good point of that. Like anything that involves a level of mastery where yeah. like there's a virtuoso level or a level you can hit, right? Like I'm, I'm a violin player. I don't, yeah. I don't play a lot now. It's not a huge part of like my, you know, I'm not a professional musician by any stretch and it's not a huge part of my hobbies really anymore, but I trained for 13 years and I a hundred percent can go and pick up my violin right now. I could probably tune it without a tuner. Cause like wow. the notes are in my ear. I am not very good at it without a tuner anymore, but, and I could also probably pick it up and I could, I could play you something, right? Like, mm-hmm. because like the muscle memory is so incredible grained in how to hold the instrument how to make a sound from it how to make it sound good uh and that's like you know look it's the the cliche right you know you will you know you never forget how to ride a bike um but it's true when you have ingrained something into (laughs) your physicality like that there is very little you can do to forget it again yeah um, exactly. <laughs> which is, which is sort of, which is one, again, like it's, it, you know, then you start to get into this whole co- topic of like neuroplasticity and stuff and it becomes really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so that's, you know, that's just for me, like from a science perspective, what I love so much about baseball. And I mean, I know we talked a little bit about like the drama aspect of it too, which, which I think, I think it plays into why baseball is such a popular sport, especially in movies, because I think like not everyone is going to be a big sports enjoyer, but we all love stories and things like that. And I think the prevalence and the popularity of like baseball movies, even to people that aren't big baseball fans, it's because there are moments in this sport that just hit on this very primal aspect of like the human condition. I think. And it, it is, it's a lot of like the indi- like individual resiliency and success yeah. in a team environment, which yeah. is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very easy to, to cut and paste together. The like, so yes. you, you can, you yes. get your story. Uh, but then when you have a game, you can like pick and choose little moments that you want to, you want to yeah. put in and stuff. Also remember there were two other baseball movies I watched. As oh a kid. yes. I don't remember what they're called. Uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably remember what they're called. I've okay, watched good, a lot of good. baseball movies. Uh, they're from the early 2000s or okay. from the 90s. Okay. Um, and one is a kid. He breaks his arm and he gets put in a cast. Oh yeah. Like, Rookie of the year. Rookie of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's like held in a cast. It's at like a 90 degree angle out from his arm. And when he gets it off, he can pitch really well. So he yeah. gets, he goes to the major leagues as a pitcher. Uh, and then there's another <laughs> For the one. Cubs at a time when like the Cubs hadn't won. And the, the Cubs basically went a hundred years without winning a world series. Yeah. They won a few years ago. It was crazy. But anyway, yeah. 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 Uh, but so that was one of them that was, I remember being exciting because it's, it's like a kid in the baseball and he can like pitch really well. And like, what if mm-hmm. he loses this ability? And he's like, still got to be a kid. And then there was another one where it was a kid and his dad or his, uh, his grandpa, I think was like. He owned a team, and when yeah. he died, he left it to the kid, and so the kid was the GM of this. Yeah, yeah. That one I cannot remember the name remember. of off the top of my head, but that I I, I had a feeling that that was going to be the <laughs> other one you were going to mention because it's the other one that like stars a kid, and it's like and they're actually both of those are phenomenal films. Yeah, they're very well done. Um, oh, and of course, The Sandlot. Oh yeah, well everybody loves yeah. The Sandlot. Yeah, for sure. And and I think <laughs> The Sandlot actually is a great introduction to like why baseball is so much fun and like what it's because it, it's a camaraderie sport. You can just play all day. You can hang out in the sun. You know, my, my softball team, not me because I don't really organize it, but like the team that I play with, uh, I, I hope we're going to get to play this year. Uh, shout out to all my send it pals. Um, we we just chirp each other the whole time. Oh, we are vicious to each other in the funniest way. You're you know? killing me, Smalls. Oh, exactly. It, it, exactly <laughs> stuff like that. You know, and and it's and that's the funny thing about it. You're, we're celebrating that failure with each other. So, and we make fun of each other for our failures so that no one ever really feels bad about their failures. Yeah. So like, 
and and we have had you know players over the years that have kind of gotten quote unquote like kicked off the team after seasons because they're just not good at they're not good at doing that or or when they're doing or they're only really yeah they're they're not being wholesome about uh, teasing each other about not doing well like we're never trying to tease each other because someone has blown a game for us or something but because we're all just there to have fun and we just want to joke around and hang out in the sun and do a little bit of physical activity but yeah the sandlot is a great one because that's really all it is it's just a bunch of young kids hanging out in their you know in the back fields all summer playing baseball and like building relationships with each other it's a great, it's a great sport. And there's, again, like if you're into statistics, like if you like numbers, what a sport if you like numbers. Like, <laughs> But yeah, um, I think that kind of, that kind of takes us through, through our topics today. So yeah. I have, I have oh, one yes. question I was requested to ask you. Oh, oh, um, interesting. About the Blue Jays. Oh, from interesting. my dad and he wants to know why do the Blue Jays suck? Well, they, well, they don't suck. They're going to, okay. they're going to do pretty well this year. Okay. I mean, we're only like 10 games into the season and okay. there's 162 to play, but they are not going to suck this year. Okay. I am pretty certain of it. They're, I'm very <laughs> much looking forward to this season of the Blue Jays, actually. They're going to be really good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to you telling me about them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so yeah, we just wanted to close out here, I think, with a few little things just like, you know, it's the spring and we've had, I think it's been a really, really hard year for everybody. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now is the time really, yeah, like, you know, whether it's your spring cleaning or, you know, yeah, we might not be able to play, you know, rec sports and things like that right away with each other. But like sun's starting to get out there, uh, start getting out, out there, get lots of sun safely, put your sunscreen on. Yes. Um, if you are going to a more populated area, wear a mask, even if you're outside. Yeah. Especially if you're in regions, this is actually an interesting little science thing to throw in a, in that kind of like PSA level of things almost <laughs> is that. A lot of jurisdictions, if you're in Canada, your positivity rate is going to be over 10% or in that range. If you're in an area where the positivity rate is creeping up to 10%, you might want to consider like, you want to wear a mask when you're out and about in your community. Yeah. So, you know, in Calgary, you know, you walk around Inglewood, there's going to be a lot of people on the sidewalk there. You're outside and like, yeah, you don't really need to wear the mask outside. But when the positivity rates are so high uh, on the testing that's when you might want to consider increasing where you're wearing your mask and being more mindful of the places you're going in the day and things like that. I consider basically anywhere that I'm going to be within two meters of people. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's not like, like on a, when I go for hikes, I tend to pick less popular trails. And as I pass people, like every once in a while, I'll hold my breath if I'm really thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I'm going to a place that's more popular, like I remember last year going to Banff, and seeing everyone outside, like the streets were full of people because they blocked them off to cars. Mm-hmm. So people could walk on them, but they were like full of people. And my friend and I were the only ones wearing masks. I think, time, Banff, like... I think Banff now has a rule where when you are walking around on the street, like I know okay, Canmore good. has that rule. Like if you're in the city center, you're supposed to wear a mask the whole time. Which just makes sense because you can be like shoulder to shoulder someone just because we're outside doesn't mean that I'm not going to be breathing in your air droplets. Yeah. So just something to keep <laughs> in mind. And yeah, get lots of sun. You know, it's uh, it's good for your mental health. It's it's yes. actually good for your immune system and stuff as well. And just vitamin D. And yeah, and and be kind to each other. It's been a long, cold winter and we're we're and it's going to be a little bit longer before we're we, we get to have a normal summer, hopefully. Yes. So, well, thank you everyone for joining us. Any, uh, any, anything you want to promote, Sarah? Want to oh. tell us about new episodes of Third Sock from the Sun? Yes, Third Sock from the Sun. I released the third episode in the plastic series. It's called Let's Go to the Murph. And if you want to know what Murph <laughs> means, which is a super fun word, uh, check it out. Third Sock from the Sun on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I have anything to promote this week. Uh, just this podcast. Just this podcast. Listen to this podcast. (laughs) If you haven't already, since you're at hour two, pretty much. (laughs) Send it to your friends. Uh, 
Um, Tell us what you think on Twitter. Yeah, uh, follow us on Twitter at, at temporary expert. Well, that's just one expert. I, I may change that. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking feedback on temp experts v temporary expert. But uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at temporary experts as well. It'll, it'll come up if you search that. So send us some feedback. Let us know your thoughts, your corrections, what other topics you might want to see us cover. I don't know what we'll talk about next week. Um, I'll keep my ear to the ground. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do something more serious. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully we do something fun. But because uh, <laughs> science is fun. Science is so fun. Science is so much fun. All right. Uh, yeah. So for us at Temporary Experts, she is Sarah Bannister. He's Davis Leong. And, and we, we have been your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening.